2: This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault, including the violent homicide of a young girl, that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13.
3: Richard? Richard, do you hear that? I've just about lost my mind. The Bricka's dogs have been barking all day.
0: I called down to the plant earlier. Jerry hasn't been to work for two days now. I'm telling you, something's off. Jerry is like clockwork.
3: Oh, they're such a nice young couple. You two best go check on them.
0: Yeah, yeah, we should. I appreciate you coming with, Jansen. Don't know what to expect. Huh, that's strange. They haven't brought in the papers. Jerry, Linda, is everything all right? Betty said the dogs have been barking all day. Just wanted to check in on you. Oh, for... Just try the handle. Oh! God, what is that? That smell, it's awful! Jensen, get the police down here, quick!
2: On September 27th, 1966, Richard Meyer and Jerry Jansen knocked on the door of their neighbors the Brickas.
1: Instead of a friendly conversation, the two men found the young married couple and their four-year-old daughter brutally murdered.
2: This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories on the Parcast Network. I'm your host, Carter Roy.
1: And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. This is our episode on the Bricka Family Murders.
2: At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love, so let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network.
1: And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merch. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information.
2: You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of Parcast's other shows wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: On September 27th, 1966, the Bricka family was found dead in their home from multiple vicious
2: stab wounds. No one in the neighborhood had heard or seen anything unusual until the Bricka's two barking dogs prompted the neighbors to investigate.
1: With the shocking murders of Jerry, Linda, and Deborah Ann Bricka, the quiet Cincinnati suburb of Woodhaven was suddenly filled with rumors of serial killers and hitmen.
2: Those same rumors have helped to create an all-American crime that has both bewildered and intrigued the public for half of a century.
1: Gerald Jerry Bricka was born in San Francisco in 1938 to Elmer and Dolores Bricka. He was raised in San Francisco and had, for all intents and purposes, a good childhood.
2: Throughout high school, Jerry was a competitive swimmer and even completed the one-and-a-half-mile open water Golden Gate Swim on several occasions.
1: Jerry wasn't a big guy, topping out at 5'10 and weighing 170 pounds. However, due to his swimming routine,
2: he was fit and strong. He graduated from St. Ignatius High School in 1956 at 18 years old, then attended college at Stanford, where he earned a degree in chemical engineering in 1960 at 22 years old.
1: Straight out of college, Jerry moved to Seattle and landed a job with a Monsanto company, a huge manufacturer of pesticides, plastics, and industrial goods.
2: Neighbors and colleagues described Jerry as a friendly and industrious worker, the kind of guy who wasn't shy with a smile and a greeting. While living in Seattle, Jerry met the love of his life, Linda Jane Bula.
1: Linda was born in 1943 in Barrington Hills, a wealthy community just outside of Chicago. And she lived a comfortable life. Linda's father had acquired a fortune through his welding and engineering business.
2: Described by all as intelligent and beautiful, Linda graduated from high school in less than four years at 17 years old in 1960. She quickly decided that she wanted to see the world and left Barrington Hills.
1: After she left home, Linda attended and completed stewardess training school. She acquired a job for United Airlines and was working this job when she met Jerry. The two started dating and quickly fell in love.
2: 23-year-old Jerry and 18-year-old Linda got married on November 25th, 1961, less than a year after they had met. Despite the hasty union, they were seen as a happy couple and seemed like a perfect fit for one another.
1: On June 9, 1962, the Bricka's daughter, Deborah Ann Bricka, was born. Before the end of 1962, Jerry was transferred to a new job at a different Monsanto plant the brick has moved to the Woodhaven subdivision of Green Township on the west side of Cincinnati, Ohio.
2: And this is where the details get murky.
1: Who are
3: they?
0: The new neighbors? I believe their names are Jerry and Linda. I
3: tried saying hello earlier, and Linda completely ignored me.
0: Oh, I'm sure she didn't mean anything by it. The kids seem all right.
3: (laughs) The kids. I like it. She was certainly acting childish.
1: Woodhaven was a sleepy little neighborhood mostly home to older couples and retirees. Made up of standard three-bedroom single-car garage homes, characteristic of the 1950s, Woodhaven was the definition of idyllic suburbia.
2: The residents often spent each evening on their porches, cooling off and catching up with neighbors. Few, if any of them, locked their doors at night.
1: Even the local police department only operated for 14 hours of the day, with no officers working the night shift. This was not a place where bad things happened.
2: The kids, as the Brickas were dubbed by their neighbors, were the youngest couple in the entire subdivision by nearly 10 years. Due in large part to the age difference, the Brickas kept mostly to themselves.
1: Most of the neighbors agreed that while Linda was pleasant, she was often aloof. Some even described her as stuck up, However, everyone found Jerry to be quite friendly.
2: From 1962 until 1966, the Brickas settled into their new home. They often frequented block parties and attended the occasional backyard luau, raising their daughter in suburban comfort. But on September 25th, 1966, this peaceful suburb turned deadly.
1: It started off as a typical Sunday. 28-year-old Jerry Bricka, 23-year-old Linda, and 4-year-old Debbie attended Catholic Mass as a family at 10 a.m. When the family left church around noon, Linda took Debbie home, while Jerry went to the Monsanto Plastics facility to get a head start on the week. It wasn't unusual for Jerry to work during the weekend as he was angling for a promotion at the time.
2: Jerry left work around 8 p.m. He stopped to pick up some milk on the way home, and finished driving the last three miles. It had rained intermittently throughout the day and the evening was cool by the time Jerry had arrived home.
1: Remembering that the following day was trash pickup, Jerry hauled his garbage cans out to the road. Using a break in the rain to walk her dog, the neighbor Joan Jansen saw Jerry and stopped for a short chat. Good evening, Mrs. Jansen.
4: Evening, Jerry. Is everything all right at home, dear?
5: I've been at work all day. Why? Is something wrong?
4: Oh, no. I just noticed Linda hasn't been out in the garden like usual.
5: I'm sure the rain had something to do with that.
4: Oh, silly me.
5: I've got to be getting into Linda. Take care, Mrs. Jansen.
4: Good night, Jerry.
2: After saying his goodbyes, Jerry went inside where Linda and Deborah were watching television. That was the last time anyone ever saw him alive.
1: Over 50 years later, the mystery of what happened next remains unsolved.
2: Monday morning came and went. The Bricka's emptied trash cans and fresh newspaper went untouched. Neighbors began to talk when they didn't see Linda working in her garden with little Deborah playing nearby.
1: By Tuesday, another day's paper joined the first, and the Bricka's two dogs, Thumper and Dusty, were barking incessantly. Neighbors Jansen and Meyer, urged on by their wives, finally went to investigate between 10 and 10.30 p.m. on Tuesday, September 27th, 1966.
2: They opened the door to the acrid odor of rotting flesh.
4: Green Township PD, how may I help you?
2: Ma'am, we need you to send an officer and an ambulance,
0: quick. We're over in the Woodhaven subdivision.
4: What is the emergency?
0: There's been multiple murders. There's a child. Please hurry.
1: When first responders arrived, they lit up the quiet neighborhood with bright emergency lights.
2: First responders cleared the smell from the house with heavy industrial fans. Afterwards, lead investigator Lieutenant Herbert Vogel led Jansen and Meyer into the home to identify the bodies.
1: The sight that greeted the two men haunted them for the rest of their lives. Green Township would never be the
2: same. The investigation begins after this.
1: And now, back to the story.
2: On September 27, 1966, friends and neighbors, Jerry Jansen and Richard Meyer, discovered the bodies of the murdered Bricka family.
1: Led into the crime scene by lead investigator, Lieutenant Herbert Vogel, the two men were asked to identify the remains.
5: I'm sorry to ask you about this, but you're all we got. The closest relatives aren't responding to our calls. I was told they were on vacation.
0: No, no, it's alright. Where are they?
5: Just in here, the master bedroom. I'm not gonna lie, this is gonna be hard to look at.
0: God almighty! Oh, so much blood! That's them! Linda and Jerry Bricka. And their daughter, Debbie. Is she... Please tell me she got away.
5: I'm afraid not. She's in her room. Please follow me.
0: I can't. I'm sorry. It's fine. I'll look.
1: Oh, God. Oh, God, it's her. It's Debbie. Decades later, Meyer would be asked by journalists about what he saw. Wincing at the memory, he withheld the more extreme details, eventually saying that he would never forget the blood-soaked bodies of his neighbors and the prone figure of their murdered four-year-old daughter.
2: Myers and Jansen weren't the only people deeply affected by the heinous crime.
1: According to a report by the Western Hills Press, residents of Green Township began buying ice picks tear gas guns, shotguns, pistols, ammunition, door locks, barrel bolts, and door chain guards in an effort to protect themselves.
2: It was a full-on panic. Similarly, the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals reported that an unusually high number of large dogs were being adopted in the weeks following the murders.
1: Residents petitioned and convinced the township to install more streetlights, They hired a night constable to patrol the streets while they slept. Even Halloween was rescheduled so that trick-or-treating could occur during the afternoon instead of at night. The sense of security in Woodhaven had been well and truly shattered.
2: This fear motivated investigators to solve the murder as quickly as possible. They pieced together a theorized version of events based on physical evidence and witness testimonies. To the best
1: of the investigators' knowledge, the Brickas had been in their living room watching television. Linda folded laundry while Jerry relaxed on the couch.
2: Jerry then took Debbie upstairs and put her to bed. Investigators believe that's when the killer struck. The murderer likely snuck through an unlocked basement window and confronted Linda first.
1: Both Linda and Jerry had been led to their room by the intruder. Jerry was found with a sock stuffed into his mouth and a piece of medical tape still stuck to his chin. Marks on his and Linda's wrists suggested the possibility that they had been tightly bound with ropes.
2: According to an official report by investigators, the bodies of the couple were found lying on top of one another on their bed. Jerry had been stabbed a total of nine times, There were four wounds on the left side of his back, three in the neck, and two on his head.
1: Stacked on top of her husband, Linda had been stabbed a total of eight times. Unlike Jerry, she had been stabbed from the front and sustained six wounds to the right side of her chest, and a further two to her head.
2: Their daughter, Deborah Bricka, had been stabbed in the back a total of four times, each wound passing entirely through her small body. She was found against one wall of her room, separated from her two parents.
1: While horrific, the stab wounds offered several major clues. First, they suggested that the killer was left-handed. Similarly, the shape and length of the wounds likely matched the dimensions of a carving knife that had gone missing from the Bricka's kitchen.
2: The investigators conducted an exhaustive search for the missing knife. One detective even crawled into a sewer grate to check for it. Unfortunately, the knife was never found.
1: Given the glaring lack of a murder weapon, investigators were forced to work off hunches and theories in order to explain its disappearance. If the murderer hadn't simply kept the weapon, investigators believed that the next best explanation was that the murderer wrapped the knife in newspaper and put it in the as trash cans on their way out. Later that morning, the trash would have been taken to the dump, where the knife would disappear along with any hopes of ever finding the murder weapon.
2: If this had happened, investigators believe this would also mean that the murderer knew where to find the carving knife and that the murderer was aware of the neighborhood's trash schedule. These theories led detectives to believe that the Brickas knew their murderer.
1: However, in what was perhaps the strangest detail of the case, the Brickas' two dogs were found locked in the basement with evidence that they had been sedated. How this occurred is still a mystery.
2: Some additional evidence reported in the papers proved to be shoddy guesswork more than anything else. Rumors propagated by multiple news sources made claims that were either not corroborated by police or later proven false. For example, several
1: newspapers claimed that the entire incident had been a robbery gone wrong. While the home had been ransacked, it was not clear whether anything of value had actually been taken.
2: Other newspapers reported that Linda Bricka had been raped before being murdered. This was partially corroborated by an unnamed medical examiner. The examiner concluded that while Linda might have had intercourse shortly before her death, there was no evidence that it was forced.
1: After collecting all the evidence, detectives in Hamilton County, Ohio, interviewed around 300 potential suspects and persons of interest. Lead investigator, Lieutenant Vogel, had the difficult task of sifting through all the various leads.
5: I just can't get over it. The dogs don't make sense. Since when do your everyday burglars carry animal sedatives? Maybe they were professionals. Did either of the deceased have any connection with animals? The wife. She started working for a local veterinarian a few
0: weeks before her murder. One Mr. Fred Leninger. Then he's likely our best place to start. Some of the boys already spoke with him, seeing as he was Mrs. Bricka's employer and all.
5: I think I'll drop in on him again. It never hurts to be thorough, after all.
2: Sometime during the weeks after the murder, Lieutenant Vogel re-interviewed 38-year-old veterinary doctor Fred Leninger. They spoke for nearly 45 minutes.
5: I hope you don't mind me recording you.
0: I don't appreciate being treated like some sort of criminal. I spoke to an officer weeks ago.
5: Did Linda Bricka work for you?
0: This is a waste of time. You already know she does, or did.
5: How long was Mrs. Bricka employed at your veterinary practice?
0: A few weeks.
5: Enough time to notice how beautiful she was, huh?
0: I'm sorry, what are you insinuating?
5: I'm not insinuating anything. Mrs. Bricka was a beautiful woman.
0: I'm happily married.
5: Still, maybe she spurned your advances. Or maybe she encouraged you, but you wanted more either way. So you went to her place.
0: No, no, I I would never. And
5: when she denied you again, you killed her, her husband and their
2: four-year-old daughter in a fit of rage.
0: I'm done here. I want you out. I'm not answering any more of your questions.
2: We don't know their conversation verbatim, but Lieutenant Vogel made it clear that he thought Dr. Leninger was hiding something. While there were no eyewitnesses directly confirming Dr. Leninger's involvement, some rumors spread around town that pointed to the doctor as a suspect.
1: Rumors from locals and concerned citizens alike suggested that Linda Bricka was conducting an affair with an unknown suitor. Self-proclaimed witnesses even claimed they had seen Linda with a man that wasn't her husband, parked in the local Lover's Lane, a road in the town where couples would go to get intimate away from their homes.
2: Based on these rumors, investigators believed that the killings had been a crime of passion committed by a scorned admirer or lover of Mrs. Bricka. This anonymous man of rumor could have been anyone, but Dr. Leninger stood out as a potential suspect.
1: Linda's recent employment at his practice provided the opportunity for them to meet, and an illicit relationship to develop. Dr. Leninger's practice, the Glenway Animal Hospital, was less than a five-minute drive from the Bricka's home.
2: And while it hasn't been confirmed, fans of true crime have speculated that, like his practice... Dr. Leninger's home was probably nearby as well. It also stands to reason that a veterinarian would be best suited to sedate the Bricka's dogs.
1: Leninger's proximity to Linda implied both opportunity and motive, so the general rumors began to focus on him specifically. Unfortunately, none of these rumors were ever supported with any hard evidence. Witnesses were either anonymous or uncredible, And when the Bricka's neighbors were eventually asked about the speculation, none of them believed Linda was stepping out on her husband.
2: Most of the case against Dr. Leninger relied on rumor and speculation. And yet, despite all the suspicions surrounding him, Dr. Leninger never actually provided himself with an alibi.
1: After Lieutenant Vogel reviewed his recording with the doctor, he couldn't shake his suspicions. He wanted to speak with Dr. Leninger again. When he called the Leninger's house, Mrs. Leninger picked up the phone. Hello?
5: Hello, Mrs. Leninger. This is Lieutenant Vogel. I spoke to your husband last week and had a few follow-up questions. Is he there?
3: You should be ashamed of yourself. After you left, my husband was so rattled he could hardly talk. He won't be speaking with you anymore, Mr. Vogel... You'll have to get in touch with his lawyer.
5: A lawyer? Your husband isn't under arrest for anything.
3: As I said, you'll have to take it up with Mr. Moore. Goodbye now.
1: Claiming that he had felt threatened by the police, Dr. Leninger hired Richard Moore, a bulldog of a man, to be his lawyer the very next day. Once Moore got involved, all cooperation with investigators
2: stopped. In March of 1967, nearly seven months after the Brickham murders, the Cincinnati Enquirer ran an article regarding the stalled negotiations between Lieutenant Vogel and Richard Moore. Dr. Leninger's name was left out in an effort to keep his involvement anonymous. In the
1: article, it was noted that Mr. Moore had set forth a series of demands regarding his unnamed client's cooperation. Lt. Vogel had agreed to several of the stipulations, including a series of predetermined questions, the constant presence of Mr. Moore, as well as meeting in a place and a time at the client's
2: convenience. Even with these concessions, Mr. Moore was still uncooperative, going so far as to ignore calls from the police department. Eventually, after a Green Township officer ran into him on the steps of the courthouse, Mr. Moore responded with his most audacious demand yet.
1: Mr. Moore requested that police hand over Lieutenant Vogel's 45-minute recording of his client. Vogel, of course, refused. He even went so far as to publicly claim that Mr. Moore was obstructing a criminal investigation.
2: This tense back and forth might have escalated further if it wasn't for one important precedent that had just been set in the Midwest, the Miranda Rules.
1: In the middle of 1966, mere months before the BRICA Murders, the Supreme Court of the United States decided that all citizens accused of a crime must be informed of their Fifth and Sixth Amendment rights prior to interrogation. Essentially, people must be informed of their rights to remain silent and to retain an attorney.
2: While Dr. Leninger was not under arrest, everything he said, or didn't say, was assumed to be on the record. Since Lieutenant Vogel had not complied with the newly established Miranda rules, he made it almost too easy for Dr. Leninger's lawyer to refuse to cooperate.
1: This is where the investigation seemed to idle, stuck at a dead end. An uncooperative lawyer and his client shut down an investigation that has made little to no progress for over half a century.
2: To complicate matters further, Dr. Fred Leninger could no longer cooperate with police in this investigation, even if he wanted to. Decades after the murder in 2004, when he was 73 years old, Dr. Fred Leninger and his wife passed away due to natural causes during their retirement in Florida. Or at least that's what their obituaries read. The Leninger's
1: official death records show that both Fred and his wife committed suicide in Ohio. Unfortunately, independent journalists have been unable to uncover the means or circumstances of the elderly couple's deaths. Similarly, Law enforcement has not released any details on the dual suicides.
2: It has been speculated that failing health or the feeling that they were burdens to their relatives caused the elderly Leninger couple to kill themselves. However, fans of true crime have suggested another reason.
1: Guilt. While there are many reasons why an individual or even two individuals might take their own lives, guilt has always been looked at as a distinct possibility in the case of the Leningers.
2: No one can say definitively whether Dr. Leninger or his wife had anything to do with the Brickham murders. However, rumors, theories, and fans of the true crime genre haven't let this case lie.
1: And with all this speculation, only one thing remains consistent. Most theorists believe that Linda was at the center of it all. And some believe that Linda's possible ties to a shady past may have led to her family's demise.
2: We'll take a deeper look into Linda's past after this.
1: And now, back to the story.
2: The Bricka family was murdered on September 25th, 1966 in a quiet Cincinnati suburb, shocking the peaceful township and spreading an insidious fear between the residents.
1: By March of 1967, only seven months after the murders, the investigation was halted by Dr. Leninger and his lawyer, Mr. Moore. Police and armchair detectives alike began to grasp at other possibilities.
4: Why are you doing this?
0: It won't matter in a couple of minutes.
4: Please. Please. You don't have to go through with this.
0: I'm afraid I do, Mrs. Bricka.
4: I-I didn't see anything. I don't know anything. I promise. Please. I promise.
0: You can't take back what's already done. Sorry.
4: (laughs) Please.
3: Not my baby girl. I beg you! (laughs) Not Debbie!
0: (laughs) Just you and your husband. Those are my orders. Ah, Little girl, let's get you back to sleep.
2: There are some neighbors who believe the Brickas were murdered by a professional killer or hitman.
1: Nettie Caudell, a neighbor who had become friends with Linda, claimed that Linda grew more fearful and paranoid about a threat that Linda never fully
2: explained. Linda and Nettie's daughters would get together on regular play dates. In the weeks leading up to the Bricka murders, Nettie acted as Linda's confidant, so Nettie's testimony holds a little more weight than some of the other rumors that had been floating around.
1: According to Nettie, Linda's paranoia got so bad that she began picking Debbie up from playdates instead of allowing her daughter to walk home on her own.
2: Nettie elaborated that Linda had said she had once, quote, helped to break up a drug ring, end quote. Investigators have been unable to find any record of Linda working as an informant for the police, so it's questionable as to whether this story is true. Yet there are many aspects of this case that imply the murders were more than a crime of passion.
1: For example, the killer was efficient and fastidious in their actions. They bound and gagged the brickas, sedated their dogs, disposed of the murder weapon, and managed to wipe the home of almost all forensic evidence.
2: The murderer managed to keep any noise to a minimum making sure that neighbors on either side, only 15 feet or so away, were kept in the dark.
1: Many in the neighborhood suspected that this was the work of an experienced killer. Richard Meyer, one of the neighbors who'd ID'd the bodies, also firmly believed that the Bricka murders were pre-planned.
2: Mr. Meyer didn't believe that an individual without experience committing violent acts could murder an entire family, including a small child in cold blood.
1: Working under the presumption that the Brickus killer was an experienced killer, investigators proposed a few more specific possibilities. Perhaps the Brickus had been murdered by a serial killer.
2: This theory was particularly compelling to investigators because Cincinnati had been faced with a series of brutal slayings that took place both before and after the Bricka family murders.
1: On December 2, 1965, almost nine months before the Bricka family murders, the body of a 56-year-old woman named Imogene Harrington was found stashed in a bathroom in her apartment building's basement. She had been raped, then strangled to death with a nylon
2: cord. Then on April 4th, 1966, a 58-year-old woman named Lois Dant was found murdered in her own home. She had been raped and strangled with her own stockings.
1: On June 10, 1966, a 56-year-old woman named Jeanette Messer was found strangled to death with a necktie in a park two blocks away from her home. At this point, Cincinnati police believed they had a serial killer loose on the street and dubbed the killer the Cincinnati Strangler.
2: The Strangler claimed his next victim on August 14, 1966. Barbara Bowman, a 31-year-old woman, had taken a cab home after a night out with her friends. She was found with multiple stab wounds only a block away from her home.
1: An abandoned cab was found near her body. Inside the cab, the police found her purse, her blood, and the rope that had been used to strangle her. The cab had been stolen, but this find would ultimately lead to the capture of the strangler.
2: Except he wasn't captured quickly enough. On September 25th, 1966, the Brickas were found murdered in their own home. They had been bound with rope and stabbed, but not strangled. The detectives still believed that the Brickas could have been murdered by the strangler because the strangler's latest victim had been both stabbed and strangled. In addition, the possibility that Linda had been raped made speculation that the cases were connected even more interesting.
1: Investigators continued looking into the possible connection, but the strangler also continued to kill. On October 12th, 1966, the Cincinnati Strangler killed a 58-year-old woman named Alice Hochhausler. She had been bludgeoned over the head in her driveway, dragged into the garage, raped and strangled with a belt from her bathrobe.
2: The Strangler killed again only a week later on October 19, 1966. An 81-year-old woman named Rose Winstill was raped and strangled with an electrical cord in her own apartment.
1: Then on December 9th, 1966, the strangler killed his last victim, 81-year-old Layla Carrick. Layla had been strangled with her own stocking in the elevator of her apartment building.
2: On that very same day, police arrested a 28-year-old former cab driver named Postiel Lasky. Postiel was put on trial for the murder of Barbara Bowman and convicted.
1: Unfortunately... Police only had hard evidence that Postel was the killer in Barbara Bowman's case. They suspected that he was the Cincinnati Strangler and responsible for all seven murders, but they couldn't prove his involvement in a court of law.
2: Postel never confessed to any murders despite being given the death penalty. However, after Postil's arrest, the strangling murders that had plagued Cincinnati came to an end. The police were confident that they had captured the Cincinnati Strangler himself.
1: Because Postille had proven himself capable of extreme brutality, hiding physical evidence, and breaking and entering, police felt that he was also a prime suspect in the
2: Bricka family murders. Pastille was questioned about the Brickas on multiple occasions, but much like the six other stranglings, he remained tight-lipped. Police had no evidence connecting him to the crime, but that didn't mean that he didn't do it.
1: Postil would remain a credible suspect in the Bricka murders for well over three decades. However, when DNA testing became feasible in the 1990s, Postil's DNA was tested against DNA found at the Bricka's house.
2: These DNA tests proved conclusively that Postille Lasky, the Cincinnati Strangler, was not the murderer responsible for killing the Bricka family. After decades of suspecting a connection between the strangling murders and the Bricka murders, DNA evidence only proved that this speculation was a dead end.
1: The Cincinnati Strangler did not kill the Brickas, but it was still possible that the family had been murdered by a serial killer. After some further research, investigators even found a connection between the Bricka murders and the work of one of America's most notorious serial killers.
2: On June 23, 1966, two Seattle women, Lonnie Trumbull and Lisa Wick, were attacked in their apartment while they slept. Miss Trumbull was bludgeoned and strangled to death. Miss Wick survived the vicious beating but suffered severe memory loss. These attacks were committed by the infamous serial rapist and murderer, Ted Bundy. Both
1: women had been United Airlines stewardesses and had trained, worked, and lived with Linda, according to the Brick's neighbor, Mrs. Cadell.
2: The deadly attacks on two of her friends could have weighed heavily on her mind. It would even explain some of Linda's paranoia in the weeks before her death
1: and perhaps Linda's worst nightmare had actually come true even though the bricka home had been ransacked the wreckage had been meticulously cleaned of all possible fingerprints ted bundy was known for his fastidious cleanliness according to ann rule ted's one-time friend ted often wiped down his own apartment so that fingerprints could not be taken if it was ever searched
2: similarly while not conclusive It was recorded that Linda had been party to sexual intercourse shortly before her death. Bundy, a known rapist, could have tied Mrs. Bricka up in order to have his way with her.
1: However, the actual murder deviates from Bundy's typical method. Bundy rarely used any sort of knife or sharp object in his crimes. He instead favored bludgeoning his victims to death with clubs or tire
2: irons. Another issue with the Ted Bundy theory is that in 1966... Bundy was a 19-year-old working at a Safeway in Seattle, Washington. There is no evidence that he traveled over 2,300 miles to Cincinnati, Ohio to commit any sort of crime.
1: So while it's certainly an interesting thought experiment to consider Bundy as a suspect, it seems like pure coincidence that Linda had known two of his victims. It's highly unlikely that he actually killed the Brickas. However... There was another murder where the victim's connection to Linda may prove more compelling.
2: On September 18th, 1966, only one week before the Bricka murders, Valerie Percy, a Chicago socialite and former high school classmate of Linda's, was savagely stabbed to death in her bed, only 25 miles from where Linda Bricka had been raised. Mrs. Percy, Valerie's mother walked in on the intruder, causing him to panic and escape into the night.
1: Similar to the Bricka murders, this seemed like a targeted attack, not a robbery gone wrong. Like Linda, Valerie was from an affluent and prominent family. Valerie's father, Charles Chuck Percy, was a wealthy businessman in the midst of running as a candidate for the US Senate at the time of his daughter's murder.
2: Both women's families likely ran in the same social circles. True crime author J.T. Townsend has researched both crimes and claims that both women's fathers even knew each other personally. This could suggest a relationship between the murders that was never explored or investigated by the police.
1: But there may have been a connection between these two women that went deeper than similar childhoods. One of the Bricka's neighbors, Richard Meyer, related a conversation he had had with Linda during the week before her death.
0: Hello, Mrs. Bricker. Debbie, where are you two coming from?
4: Oh, just a play date with Darlene. Are you all right, Linda?
0: Is something bothering you?
4: Run on across the street, honey. I'll be right behind you. Look both ways. I didn't want Debbie to hear. A friend of mine, Valerie Percy, was murdered yesterday.
0: Oh, that's terrible. Not around here, I hope.
4: No, no. Back home in Illinois. She was murdered at home. In her own bed, no less. It's...
0: Downright unsettling.
4: Makes me think is all. Bad things could happen to anyone. Anywhere, at any time. I'm sorry. I don't mean to burden you with such awful thoughts.
0: It's quite all right. Really,
1: if you need anything, you let Betty or I know and we'll come running. This conversation suggested that there were some hidden connections between Valerie and Linda's murders... And many journalists and detectives have speculated that finding evidence of this connection in one case might even help solve the other. However, solid evidence of a connection has yet to be discovered.
2: Unfortunately, to this day, neither investigation has come any closer to a solution. The FBI has tried new methods of forensic testing, and fresh detectives consistently provide new perspectives on each case, but no new leads have been found.
1: And now, with both the Percy and Bricka murders entering their sixth decade as cold cases, it doesn't appear that either will be solved anytime soon. But with the information we do have, we might be able to narrow down the suspects.
2: It's always hard to say definitively who did what when so little factual information exists on a particular case.
1: In this instance, I think we can rule out Ted Bundy. He doesn't fit cleanly as an actual suspect. Our only other named suspect is Dr. Fred Leninger.
2: Well, the rumors surrounding Dr. Leninger and Linda are compelling, and we can't forget that he quickly refused to cooperate with police. The Bricka's dogs had been sedated, and a veterinarian would have both easy access to sedatives as well as experience with putting dogs to sleep. Some might also see Dr. Leninger's 2004 suicide as an admission of guilt.
1: However, beyond suspicious behavior and the circumstantial means to commit the crime, there was no solid evidence directly linking him to the case. His suicide could also have other reasonable explanations, including severe health problems in his old
2: age. So, if both of our named suspects were unlikely to be the killer, then the Bricka's actual murderer may have been an unnamed hitman. Linda's connections to Valerie Percy and the rumor that she had helped bring down a drug ring might provide some explanation for the motive of the murder.
1: The hitman theory could even explain the meticulous cleaning of the crime scene, the incapacitation of the dogs, and the expert disposal of the murder weapon. Of course, even if the Brickas were killed by a professional hitman, we would likely never know who actually did the killing.
2: So, out of all of our possibilities, I think Dr. Fred Leninger most likely killed the Brickas. Even without hard evidence, his suspicious behavior and refusal to provide an alibi makes me think he doth protest too much. You
1: might be right, but I think the Brickas' killer was most likely never named as a suspect. The killing was too efficient and too meticulous to be a crime of passion. It could only have been pulled off by a professional killer.
2: Whatever the case may be, we will likely never know who actually killed the Brickas. Green Township lost its innocence when it lost Jerry, Linda, and Debbie, and the poor family will most likely never find justice for their brutal and haunting murders. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next week with a new episode.
1: You can find more episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory.
2: Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review.
1: And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network.
2: We'll see you next time.
1: If we live till next time.
2: Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Edward Hamill and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney Osteen, Kimberly Holland, Harris Markson, and Steve Pinto.